Okay, uh, for those of you that don't know, we've been doing our series this uh, summer uh, through the, the, the doctrine of sin, trying to get a good picture on what God says about who we are in the darker parts of our nature. Uh, and we've been using as a lens to look at the doctrine of sin this question about the seven deadly sins. Thus far, we've had a chance to look at the topic of lust. Uh, we've looked at the topic of greed. Uh, we had a chance to see the, 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 the issues dealing with pride. Uh, and last week, we faced up to the question of sloth. Uh, tonight, uh, in order to <laughs> cram all these into a summer series, we're going to cover two of the seven deadly sins. Tonight, we cover envy and anger. And I hope to explain as we get going why it is that I've combined those two. And uh, Lord willing, next week, we will jump into gluttony. We will jump into gluttony tomorrow. We will stuff ourselves with gluttony next week. Uh, but first, let's uh, take a look at a great story that illustrates for us the issues uh, surrounding envy and anger, for that matter, from 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 6. Let's, uh, let's listen while we hear God's Word. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that would be um, Goliath, uh, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Okay, this is God's word from this little slice of early Jewish history and the, uh, the uh, rise of King David. Um, you know, tonight, when we get to envy and to anger, we come to um, really what are the first of the, the really truly unpleasant uh, uh, deadly sins. Uh, to be honest with you, all the ones that we've gone through, uh, to some sense, cloak themselves in a measure of, of enjoyment, do they not? Uh, you know, the lust and greed hold out things in front of us and pride that seem like they would build us up and make us happy, even though we've looked at they won't. Envy and anger, uh, envy especially, when it shows up in our lives, it's one of the first things that makes us miserable when we indulge in it. Uh, you know, I feel like, and what I'm trying to suggest to you, is that these two are very similar, as a matter of fact, very attached to one another in terms of cause and effect. Um, as a matter of fact, what I'm going to try to establish tonight is a little bit of a logical connection in saying that it is envy that leads to anger. Envy is the impetus, the spark plug, as it were, 
of anger. And so therefore, the two of them tend to come as sort of twin evil cousins, if you will. Okay, so that's what I want to do tonight. Is I want to look at envy, and then I want to look at anger, and then I want to look at the last point, at the question of um, the gospel and how the gospel begins to deal uh, especially with our envy. Okay? All right, so first, let's start with the whole topic of envy. Again, I, I've said this every week because it's just true. Special thanks to Tom Cannon, uh, so I can get this on recorded tape here, for having done uh, the lion's share of the work that I'm stealing from him and um, sometimes claiming as my own insight. Uh, but that's okay. He does the same to me. We'll, we're, we're even on it. Uh, okay, Joseph Epstein had an article in the New York Times that Tom had run across that said this. He said, of the seven deadly sins, only evil, uh, envy uh, is no fun at all. Surely it's the one that people are the least likely to own up to. For to do so is to admit that one is probably ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. Uh, the passage that we just read there in 1 Samuel says, uh, in, the, in the literal translation, that Saul looked at David through the eyes of envy. It's a literal translation there. So the question is, what is so bad about envy? What's its problem? Well, in the Bible, if you study it, you'll find that envy very oftentimes is the beginning of the end. If somebody's going to have a crash and burn, spiritually speaking, it begins in envy. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great example where the Bible talks about envy and love being direct opposites. Love does not envy, Paul says there. In other words, love by its nature is an enemy uh, of envy. Envy destroys love for one reason, and that's because envy makes you so self-absorbed. In one sense, in the way in which I'm going to pitch it to you tonight, envy is nothing more... <clears throat> than being completely absorbed with yourself. Uh, Tim Keller, a number of years ago, gave what I thought was the best definition of envy. Three simple words, okay? Envy is this. He but me. Or <laughs> she but me. Best definition I've ever heard of envy. Romans 12, 15 gives what I think is one of the harder sort of attributes of Christian uh, 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 character where it in, exhorts Christians that you're supposed to laugh with those who laugh, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. In other words, at the heart of Christian character, Paul's saying, is a love that empathizes, that connects with another person, that sees the world through their eyes, right? If you're a loving person, you can laugh with people who are laughing. You can rejoice with people who are rejoicing, even when it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. And you can also weep with other people because you know how to feel what they're feeling. Envy, though, completely reverses that. Envy causes you to laugh when other people are mourning or rejoice when other people are sorrow sorrowing and to be sad when other people are rejoicing causes just the opposite. Envy makes you so totally into yourself <clears throat> that you're unable to see what's happening in the lives of other people when it doesn't have anything to do with you or when it doesn't affect you. Everything to the envious person is about me. You know, I want to be married, and so therefore I can't get happy when someone else gets engaged and happens to find that person and end up at the altar, right? Uh, I wanted to be the gifted one in the group. And so I just can't stand it that this other person is really better at this thing than I am. 
I can't rejoice in their particular gift. I'm the one one who wanted to be dating someone at this time, even though I'm not. And so I certainly can't get excited for my best friend when they come home and tell me that they're in love. You see, envy suddenly makes everything that happens about me. And to be honest with you, it's a terrible way to live if you really start to think about it. Because you honestly see everything through the lens of your own self-interest. Once again, you're going to find that in all these deadly sins, selfishness just permeates throughout the whole expression of it. You know, whatever happens to David ultimately is about Saul. You know, the women, the people whom he wanted to be held in honor with. Sorry, ladies, it's kind of how us guys work. You know, when the women folks start praising the other dude, suddenly that's where there's problems now, right? Everything's about him. Um, And the interesting thing about envy is it's one of the few what we might call um, parasitic sins. Uh, In other words, envy has this way of needing a host upon which it feeds, like a parasite, right? In other words, it's the sin that needs uh, another person. You, you You can be slothful and prideful and everything else all by yourself, but envy needs an object, it needs something that you're looking at. You have to, to have something to hate. You've got to have someone that you obsess over or something that you covet. Um, the root of envy then comes from a couple of things. The first thing is a sense of entitlement. You know what I mean by um, a sense of entitlement? That we think in life that life owes me this stuff. I mean, I've been a good person. Or, you know, I've suffered enough. <laughs> God owes me these kinds of things. My life deserves to be good. And so I feel like these things that should happen to me are entitled. Why does that other person get them when I know the kind of things that they've done? The second thing that feeds envy is this, and this was one of Tom's insights I thought was really brilliant, is this idea that everybody's created equal. Look, I don't know how many of you grew up on, are you too, y'all are too old to have um, blues clues have been on your like, uh, uh, a childhood palette. Is that right? Do you ever heard of Blue's Clues? Do you know Blue's Clues? It's a small blue dog. Um, anyway, uh, but there was this host on there that actually started the whole thing, uh, Steve. I'm sure he's got a last name, but he was Steve on the show. Um, but um, Steve had one thing that he sang on every Blue's Clues show. Uh, does anybody know enough to know what it is? Or the mail song? No, not the mail song. That's my second thing. Fa- Favorite song, though, with that ridiculous mailbox that talks. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. It's, um, at the very end of the show, he said, you can, you can be anything that you want to be. You can do anything that you want to do. Well, guess what? It's a complete lie. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's something that gets foisted on us from the early days. You can do whatever you want. No, you can't. To be honest with you, there are certain limitations that all of us are going to struggle with whether they even be the limitations that are imposed upon us by our own giftedness. That is, certain emphases and certain things that I do well in this direction means that there's other things that I just don't do well. But yet we sort of get fed this line that, oh, everybody can do everything. You can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. (laughs) I'm not denying the fact that hard work is not good for everyone, but if you're not careful, that envy takes root because you begin to think that "I, I was owed these things. I deserve those kind of things. Um, envy, when it's all said and done, is the most destructive because it rejoices in the destruction of its host. In other words, whatever you're looking at, 
you, you get excited when it gets torn down. And this is really the, 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 the bad part of it. And I had to quote Tom on this because I thought this was brilliant. Um, uh, Tom had said that the, um, uh, one of the greatest expressions of our culture's um, envy is the icon of the gossip column. You know, culturally speaking, we love to get the scoop. And how providential that we have the death of Michael Jackson to sort of look at this under a microscope. Listen to what uh, Tom said. I thought this was brilliant. Uh, He says, We have no place for the unique, for what is rare and cannot be imitated. Since then, we would not be able to achieve it. We seem no longer able to admire and respect that which is noble, greater, or lovelier than ourselves. We feel cheated by our newspapers and magazines if no one is leveled to the dust in them. (laughs) That's convicting. We wait in ambush for the novel that fails, for the poet who commits suicide, for the financier who is a crook, for the priest who is an adulterer, and we gloat at their misfortune. Look, it's something that that we hardly would ever be willing to either admit to anybody else, much less uh, oftentimes admit, admit to ourselves. But have you ever taken a small amount of joy at the thought of seeing someone else who possesses something that you want to be good at. You want to be as pretty as them. You want to be as, uh, make as good a grades as them. You want to be as socially easygoing as they are. And all of a sudden, when you find out that they failed, there's a tiny little spark of joy inside of you that's like, ah, one less person to worry about. That, the Bible says, is the root of envy. And because it rejoices in other people's destruction, it ends up creating that destruction in its wake. Okay? All right. Envy. Number two, anger. Look, I hope that you're going to see that the chief emotion of the envious is anger. In many ways, envy is the seed of which anger is the expression You'll know when someone's struggling with envy when it's anger that pervades their life. Now, I want to grant for the fact, just to sort of do a little clearing here, that not all anger is bad. Uh, In the Bible, it clearly says that there are some times when it's appropriate to be angry. Jesus himself said, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. Um, Anger, though, will always be a barometer for the things that you love. In other words, the things that you get the most angry about are typically attached to the things that you care the most about. Uh, If I get angry at someone who has hurt uh, something that I love, like my wife and family, it's appropriate for me to be angry at that thing that threatened that love. Does that make sense? Uh, It's appropriate for me to be angry at any legitimate love that the Bible grants me uh, 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 license to love and care for. And so sometimes, honestly, it's a, it's a very healthy thing for someone to admit and to come right out with the fact that they are angry uh, at some of the things that have happened. <laughs> but let's not fool ourselves. <laughs> for the vast majority of us, our anger is not the righteous anger that the Bible is talking about it. And that's the reason why you get all the scriptural uh, warnings about it. You know, you get... Um, Uh, James chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listen to verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Well, that's an interesting way to phrase that. For the anger of man does not produce the, uh, the righteousness of God. But why? Well, if you think about it, if the root of anger is envy, what it means, therefore, is the root of anger is always going to be idolatry. You've got to think very carefully about this. We get angry because we can't have life our way. The envious person, and therefore the angry person, looks and says, I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. I'm not satisfied with either the pluses or the minuses that He's delivered my way. And so therefore I look and say, I deserve this. I must have it. And so therefore every felt need that I have suddenly becomes entitlement to be angry about it. I'm angry about my life when it doesn't go the way in which I want it to. Look, let me give you an illustration of this. And if it's never happened to you, I guarantee it's happened to somebody that you know. But I'm fascinated to watch what happens in a lot of couples, not all couples, but in a lot of couples when they experience an ugly relational breakup. You know, you've been dating, things are just so wonderful, all of a sudden crack, the you know, uh, split forms and we're going our separate ways. I'm always fascinated at the person who gets broken up with, the breakup-er, E, the breakup E. <laughs> There's a breakup-er and a breakup E, right? The person who does a breaking up, the person gets broken up with. I'm always fascinated that whenever I get a chance to talk to those people, that the, a lot of times they're just so mad. I just can't believe they would do that to us. And they go back to their friends and they badmouth them to their friends. Can you believe? Blah, 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 blah. <gasps> That's terrible. Blah, blah, blah. And they start to badmouth that person. But it's always interesting to me because... Not weeks before this, you know, head explosion of anger, that person would have confessed their undying love for that other person. Now, now follow me here. <laughs> if I say that I love and have care for this person, doesn't that suggest that I want their good no matter what? To say I love someone means I'd like to see good happen to you. I want good things to happen to you. But, of course, if we get angry when they break up with us, we now realize that there was a qualification on that love, and I wasn't there. <laughs> I suddenly begin to realize that I'd qualified that love by saying, well, as long as it includes me. But when that person goes in the other direction and decides to follow a path of life that doesn't include you, angry. And people rarely do that. And what I found that people come up with is what, forgive me, kind of lame uh, accusations against the breakup-er. Well, you know, she just led me on. She made me think there was something there when there really wasn't. Okay, look, come on, y'all. In dating, we try each other on. Sometimes we fit, sometimes we don't. Get over it. Things don't work out. You're either going to break up or get married. You knew that was one of the two choices when you started dating in the first place. Right? What are y'all upset about? <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is, it's not that they're angry. It's that they're hurt. It's that life is not going the way in which I wanted it to go. And the truth of the matter is, that actually is okay. Um, it's okay to be disappointed with life. Envy and anger come when all of a sudden that disappointment turned to devastation. And you know what it shows? It shows that deep down I had put something else higher than what God has promised me to get as one of His children. Anger always uncovers and reveals an idolatrous heart that has looked and said, as long as I can have this, then I'll be happy. That's what the anger, angry heart says. One last thought before we move on to the last point here. Um, and again, this is one that Tom brought out here. The thing that I find interesting about anger is anger's next step is typically shamelessness. We have this phrase, do we not, that so-and-so flew off the handle 
I got mad less, and mm, I did something I shouldn't have done. Now, that's funny that you'll, oftentimes there'll be some people that'll admit that, but there's some people that won't ever admit it because there's unbelievable things that happen when we get angry. Uh, anger is in many ways the, the beginning of destruction. And I realize that I'm talking to a room that probably has either been the recipient of a lot of anger, you've likely been the victim of a lot of anger, and there may be all kinds of things that you've seen, and dare I say perpetuated, because of anger. Tom had this story that he dug up from some woman named Mary Gordon, uh, who's a New York Times contributor and a professor at Amherst College in upstate uh, New York. And she tells this, and someone's writing an article about her uh, book. And I, I know this is kind of long. It's bad pedagogy to, to read to people. But I thought this was so good because it kind of gets at that embarrassment that comes from anger. Uh, one summer, the New York Times Review of Books ran a series on the deadly sins. And Mary Gordon's essay on anger was a real beauty, chiefly because she was willing to, not to admit that she knew a lot about it. One hot August afternoon, she wrote, she was in the kitchen preparing dinner for ten. Although the house was full of people, no one offered to help her chop, stir, or set the table. She was stewing in her own juices, she said, when her two small children and her 78-year-old mother insisted that she stop what she was doing and take them swimming. They positioned themselves in the car, she said, leaning on the horn and shouting her name out the window so all the neighbors could hear them, loudly reminding her that she had promised to take them to the pond. That, Gordon said, was when she lost it. She flew outside and jumped on the hood of the car. She pounded on the windshield and told her mother and her children that she was never, ever going to take any of them anywhere. <laughs> And none of them was ever going to have one friend in any house of hers until the hour of their death, which she said she hoped was soon. <laughs> then the frightening thing happened. She says, I became like a huge bird, a carrion crow. My legs became hard stalks. My eyes were sharp and vicious. I developed a murderous beak. Greasy black feathers took the place of my arms, and I flapped and I flapped and blotted out the sun's light with my flapping. Unquote. Even after she had been forced off the hood of her car, she said, it took her a while to come back to herself. And when she did, she was appalled, mostly because she suddenly realized that she had genuinely frightened her own children. Her son had said to her, I was scared because I didn't know who you were. Sin, she says, makes the sinner unrecognizable. Gordon concluded that the only antidote to it was forgiveness, but the problem it was that anger was so exciting, so enlivening, that forgiveness can seem like a limp surrender. If you have ever cherished resentment, you know how to make it you know how right it can make you feel to have someone in the world whom you believe is all wrong. You may not be up to admitting it yet, but one of the greatest benefits of having an enemy is that you get to look good by comparison. It also helps to have someone to blame for the why your life is not turning out the way in which you thought it was supposed to. Look, I tell that story because it's got an emotional impact because you can look and imagine the eyes of those child, children who, granted, were probably being extraordinarily annoying, but all of a sudden in a moment are scarred. And I began to realize that anger has a scarring ability to it. 
And very many of you, my guess is, in this room, have been recipients of that kind of anger and are walking around with a U-Haul worth of baggage from the kind of anger that's been given to you. And that's simply to draw attention to it, to get it out, to admit, so that we can say, if we don't learn to deal with our envy and our anger, God forbid that we should become someone who begins to inflict that destruction on other people. Maybe our own children, who knows what. Okay, so that brings us to the last question, all right? How in the world do we start to get over uh, our envy and our anger? Well, I hope now you start to see how healing comes. And again, two simple thoughts for having to deal with our anger. Step one, I think, to healing comes when we begin to see what Jesus talked about immediately when he preaches in Matthew, uh, uh, in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have Jesus' big sermon uh, uh, that's recorded there, the Sermon on the Mount, where in verse 4 he looks and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Look, remember what we said. Envy is the desire to have life my way, to fix life. And if you live that way for long, what you begin to find is that you're going to live in a world that will always leave you disappointed. You live in a world that you think serves you and you're perpetually disappointed. Life sometimes, you'll even admit to your friends, it just doesn't make any sense. But Jesus' followers, He said, are going to be marked because they came to a point, and to be quite frank with you, it's numerous points in life, where all of a sudden they took a look on the inside at the deep, heart-crushing problem of their own sin. And they mourned over it. And y'all, the chief effect of that, you've got to be able to connect these two, because in many ways we've been talking about it all summer long. The chief effect of owning up to the junk in your own life is to suddenly stop you from expecting the world to work out the way you want it to. It begins to erode all of that because you see the world as it really is. The world is a broken, poverty-stricken, and rebellious place. And the second the Bible says that you own that, you're doing something called mourning. And Jesus says that when you achieve that, you're suddenly going to find blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. That kind of freaks people out. How can somebody be happy or blessed when they're mourning? The answer is, is because we've looked at life, we've owned up to the fact that it is broken. This world is messed up and sin has done it. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, what does He do? He goes out to the hillside, hillside and starts to cry. When Jesus comes back and He sees Lazarus' uh, family and friends standing around bawling, what does He do? He starts to cry. Jesus looked and says, it is appropriate to look at what we have around us and to weep over it and to mourn. Because when you do, your next step is to get over the fact that, that the world should be something other than what it actually is. Look, you stop getting jealous and envious because you've owned up to the fact that when it really comes down to it, I don't deserve anything anyway. <laughs> the truth of the matter was, if we're going to start to talk about what I deserve, what I get when I, uh, in deserving things, I would get nothing. I read a quote a number of years ago uh, that talked about the, uh, uh, the Puritans from whom a lot of our theology in RUF comes and someone had said of the Puritans that these were people who were incapable of being disillusioned about life. 
because they determined to know that everything that they had was from God's gracious hand. If He gave it, it was a blessing. If He took it away, they didn't deserve it in the first place. And you know what happened? It eroded their envy. Envy is self-centered. Mourning, though, makes you other-centered. And it gives you a compassion. uh, compassion. And the reason why is because of what Jesus promises. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I love the tense of that verb. It doesn't say that they will earn their comfort. It's that they will be comforted. In other words, the comfort's going to come from someplace else. Look, y'all. If there's anything that I wanted you to get from this study of sin this summer, it's that your humility unlocks grace. But as long as you're bowed up about it, and as long as you're denying it, as long as you're walking around not even able to admit how angry and envious you are, we got nowhere to go. You got nowhere to go. There's no growing. There's no moving unless all of a sudden we begin to look at the world around us and Jesus says you've got to mourn for that. You've got to let that die. You've got to die to that particular idea. That's step number one. Step number two, though, is you've got to fill something up. <laughs> Again, most people look at that like, okay, well, that's depressing. The world is in a broken place. Got it less. Yeah, but there's something else, though. Because the truth of the matter is, the only way that you begin to really eat away at envy is by filling yourself up with Jesus' merit. Think about it. The envious person, the angry person, wants to sort of establish their own record. But the basic message of Christianity is that we don't come with our own record. We come with the Son of God's record. His life record, His way of dealing with people was given to us freely, without cost, without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy, we find out. And what that does is, is when suddenly we get that, we realize that now we have the ultimate thing to call our own. (laughs) Jesus is ready to come and to grant to His people the entire cosmos. Why? Because He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And if we, being heirs of that promise, are, are, are in relationship to God through Christ, you know what the Bible says? You are joint heirs with Him. And so what that means is that you'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Because we're co-heirs with our king, and our king owns everything. Look, the Christian doesn't envy because he doesn't lack anything. Did you catch that? (laughs) Paul says that he's learned the secret to contentment. Contentment comes from knowing that God has granted me everything. I'm not one of the have-nots. I'm one of the haves. God has granted unto His people the most that they could ever want for. And suddenly what that begins to do is to erode and to dissolve and to break up the pieces of envy that would make us hate other people and rejoice in their particular suffering. This is my last thought for you. What if the gospel was good news enough that it could fill up what you think you need inside other people or inside other relationships or inside other families? or inside better, you know, uh, 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 higher paying careers than the one that you're set on, or inside of other bodies that look differently the way in which you wish other people's would, or inside other lives who didn't have the kind of abusive experiences that you grew up with. What if the gospel was just good enough to make you suddenly realize that those things suffered by comparison? And the truth is I don't have to envy 
Okay. Envy and anger. 